0: go to the lord in prayer father we are all prone to wander as the hymn declares prone to leave you and wander off into lord sinful paths and father we thank you that you've given us your body to to have other believers other brothers and sisters call us back to repentance to keep us from wandering far and we to do that and that we would be consistently doing that in one another's lives, not because we judge one another or think we're better, but but Lord, again, because we know we all are so prone and and weak in various areas in our lives. And you've designed it this way, your church to be uh, Lord building itself up by calling one another to repentance and helping one another, encouraging one another. I pray too, Lord, just that you would continue to do a work in our body. Lord, may it be an honor and blessing to you. May Jesus Christ be lifted up and seen clearly through our testimony. In His dear name we pray. Amen. Well, I'd ask if you could please turn in your Bibles uh, to Luke 12 and stand as we read God's Word, as I read God's Word in honor of it. Luke chapter 12 is where we'll begin our time this morning. And if you could stand, please. We're not uh, going back and doing a do-over in Luke, but we want to start our time there this morning in our series in giving. Luke chapter 12, I'll be reading uh, from verse 22. This records Jesus' words to his disciples on one occasion. Verse 22, And he said to his disciples, For this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. For life is more than food, and the body than clothing. Consider the raven's, For they neither sow nor reap, and they have no storeroom nor barn. And yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? If then you cannot do even a very little thing, why are you anxious about other matters? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory did not clothe themselves like one of these. But if God so arrays the grass in the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will He clothe you? O men of little faith, And do not seek what you shall eat and what you shall drink, and do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek, but your Father knows that you need these things, but seek for His kingdom. and these things shall be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has gladly chosen to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to charity, make yourselves purses which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near, nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Father, may you give us understanding now. By your Spirit, may he illumine us, so that we may know what you have to say to us, and that we may live it out. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, those words that we just saw in Luke 12 may sound very familiar to you, especially if you were here last week when we looked at Matthew chapter 6. Jesus here in Luke 12 gives the same commands, the same illustrations. He mentions the moth, the thief, talks about focusing on seeking God's kingdom, building up treasure in heaven, an unfailing treasure. Essentially, Jesus is saying the same thing in both texts. Here in Luke 12 and also back in Matthew 6, Jesus focuses our attention on trusting not in our riches but in God. He says to let go of our dependence on things and cling to God. And then he summarizes with that phrase that he ended with here in verse 34. And he also mentioned it in Matthew 6, 21. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. In other words, he's saying money and wealth and possessions, your attitude towards them and what you do with them, they are the key to indicating your spiritual condition. What you value is where you will give your money or your time, your resources, your efforts, your skills, right? Jesus is simply saying you will invest in what matters most to you. In Matthew 6, 20, Jesus says, don't don't store up for your treasures for yourselves on earth, but store them up in heaven. And here in Luke 12, verse 33, he says that we should be selling our possessions, giving to the poor. And in doing that, we're gaining an unfailing treasure in heaven. And his point is clear. He's just saying, you know what? Hold your riches loosely. Share, be generous, give for the needs of others. Spend your efforts on caring for people, giving to the Lord. And what was said in these passages is almost the same, but the fact is these words were actually spoken at very different times in very different places. In Matthew 6, Jesus was delivering his sermon on the mount in the hills of Galilee. But here in Luke 12, this happened about a year later in the streets of Jerusalem. Circumstances surrounding him bringing up this topic here in Luke 12 are very different than those in Matthew 6. In fact, go back to verse 13, and we will see why Jesus brought up this whole issue of not being anxious, of not trusting in riches. Back in verse 13, as Jesus was teaching, it says, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? And then he said to them, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? Sounds a lot like Ecclesiastes, doesn't it, Ed? So is the man, Jesus says, who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. You know, think about this situation here in the middle of if you look earlier, Jesus was preaching about being aware of the leaven of the Pharisees and and warning them about that and exhorting them to fear God more than man. And here right in the middle of all some pretty important instruction, this guy blurts out, hey, Jesus, hey, teacher, tell my brother to pay up. Jesus responds by saying, in effect, really? Are you serious? Are you kidding me? I'm not here as some civil judge. I'm discussing matters of eternal significance. And the biggest thing on your mind is the fact that your brother has stiffed you. Again, the son of God proclaiming the deep truths of the universe, things that matter for eternity. And all this guy can think of to ask him is, "Hey, hey, make my brother pay me back. He cut me out of the deal. We have here a guy whose primary concern is earthly treasure and storing up earthly goods. And this guy's question prompts Jesus to to tell about a rich man, to give a parable, a story about a rich man who had a productive harvest. Now, the problem with this particular rich man wasn't that he had wealth, but that he was relying on his wealth. He says, "If I if I just have enough barns to store my grain, then I'm set for life. If I if I just get my IRA or 401k or stock portfolio or savings account, if I get it to this certain amount, I'm not going to have any more worries. If I can just pay off my car, my house, all my loans, then I'm set. I'm set for life. But then the parable takes an ironic twist, doesn't it? Where God tells this man as he was planning and and plotting and to store up all these riches, and he says." The night's the night. Your soul is required of you. And as this man lay down on his pillow, dreaming of a full bank account and his RV and cruises and the golf and, and all those things, he wakes up standing before God empty-handed. And so, Jesus says, is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Now, the point of the parable is, And why Jesus spoke it is he was prompted to warn us, all of us, about a great enemy. One that keeps us from trusting in God. One that keeps us from serving and worshiping him, as uh, Tim quoted earlier from Romans 12. One that causes us to care more for things rather than heaven. That enemy is subtle. That enemy is crafty. That enemy lurks not outside, but inside. It's an enemy who feigns to be a friend. And Jesus names that enemy in verse 15 when he says, Beware, be on your guard against every form of greed. Every form of greed. Greed indeed is a dangerous desire. And so Jesus repeats the warning twice when he says, Beware, pay attention, keep your eyes open, be on your guard, be watchful for this crafty desire. Jesus knows that covetousness, that is the wanting of more, And more, the dissatisfaction with what we have. He knows it is a treacherous desire and it must be carefully guarded against. For greed will take you places that you never thought you'd go. Greed will bring consequences in your life that you would do anything to take away. Greed seeks to dethrone God. So this morning, we're going to be on the watch for greed and remind ourselves just how dangerous it is, just how it shows up in our lives and what we can do about it. How can we attack this for the sin of greed has shipwrecked many souls? We must never underestimate its power or its influence. You know, in this present series that will be going for a few weeks, uh, talking about money and giving, we have to talk about Greed. We have to talk about it for it is one of the heart issues that gets in the way of serving God. It it is one of those things that gets in the way of sharing, of being generous, of caring for others, of providing for needs, of of giving for the advancement of the gospel. So in our outline this morning consists of three points, the danger of greed, the demonstration of greed and the defeat of greed. Well, let's look. I want us to go to First Timothy six where we look at the danger of greed. First Timothy, chapter six. This letter was one that one of Paul's personal letters that he wrote to Timothy, his child in the faith. Timothy had been in Ephesus and he was involved in, in shepherding the flock there, and so Paul writes this letter to Timothy to give him instruction, pastoral instruction, on the church, on the responsibilities that he has and how the church is to function. In chapter six, Paul had been teaching specifically about widows, about elders, about slaves. And then he turns his attention to warn Timothy. Before he ends this letter, he wants to warn him. Look up at verse 3 of chapter 6, where we'll pick it up. Paul says there, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife... Abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we've brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Paul begins in verse 3 by warning Timothy to be on the lookout, be on the lookout for false teachers, those who are argumentative, those who are jealous, who are evil, who are depraved, those who see religion as a means and opportunity to make money. And that last statement prompts Paul then to talk about money and the dangers that is. Because if money is something that people would use, even Jesus, to try to, to use him to make money, use him to manipulate people to give them money, Paul said that is a dangerous, dangerous desire. We all need to be aware of it. So he says there, money isn't the problem, right? But desiring it is. Notice how Paul says those who want to get rich or the love of money or some by longing for it. We call that desire greed. We call it covetousness, wanting more than what God has given or trusting in riches more than God. It's not just the fact that I want it. It's the fact that that's what I'm relying on more than the Lord. I like how John Piper uh, defined covetousness when he said, covetousness is desiring something so much that you lose your contentment in God. It's saying God isn't enough. What he gives me isn't enough. I need more. I can only be satisfied in something else, a possession, a pleasure, a person. 1 Timothy 6, Paul describes for us in graphic fashion just how dangerous coveting money can be. In verse 9, he gives us three results for those who want to get rich. He says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation. I don't think he's just speaking here of a general one. I think it's as a special temptation, a powerful temptation, one that leads to many more. He says here that those who long for money, for riches, they fall into a snare. That's a word that uh, means a trap. It is a word that is used to describe a device that uh, hunters would use to capture animals. The other two times this word is used in the New Testament, it describes the devil as the one setting the snare. The love for money makes you vulnerable to Satan's tricks. And thirdly, those who want to get rich fall into many foolish and harmful desires, he says. We're literally passions or lusts that injure picture here is that when a person has a desire to gain riches or that he or she depends on them it's it's like that person is now going down a slippery slope like one of those tall steep water slides at raging waters or hurricane harbor you know once you get on one of those things you you aren't going back to the top once you're sliding down even if you could stop yourself you've got people coming down behind you that aren't going to let you get back up there either and that's how greed is once it starts once you give in there's no going back. It reminds me of uh, Achan, Joshua 7. You remember that guy, right? God was going to give the Israelites the city of Jericho after the Levites had played their famous trumpet tune and they literally brought the house down. Yeah, first hour didn't respond to that either. so I thought I'd try one more time. Come on, this is Burbank, the land of entertainment. They brought the house down. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Okay. Anyway, anyway. When the trumpet's blasted, right? The walls came down. Achan's in there looking around and he sees it. Wow, check this out. Silver and gold. And the problem is God said, when I, when I give you the city of Jericho, take nothing out of it. Defeat the Jerichoites and leave. The spoil is mine. But see, Achan saw the glittering gold and the shiny silver and he looked around and then he took some. No one saw him, except for God, that is. Hit it in his tent. Then the Israelites go out to battle the next town, the small town of Ai, get defeated. Joshua says, Lord, what's going on? You promised to give us the land. And God tells him there's sin in the camp, Joshua. And so Achan is found out. Then he confesses. And he says, yes, it it was me. And interesting how he put it. He said, I saw the silver and the gold and I coveted them and took them, hid them in my tent. And as a result, per God's instruction, Achan, his family, his livestock were stoned to death. All that he owned were thrown in with them into a pit and covered along with the treasure that he pilfered. It's a sobering End. Achan's desire for riches brought injury. Not only injury on himself and his family, but injury on those soldiers who were defeated at Adai, death. And the glitter of gold, the enticement of wealth, the craving for things, it, it can become that irresistible bait that lures you in, and, and, and before you know it, it's latched onto you, and there's no escape. So in verse 10 of 1 Timothy, Paul echoes a common proverb of his day when he says the, the love of money, or literally silver loving, is a root of all kinds of evil. ESV puts it as a, a root of all kinds of evil. The idea here is not that every single sin can be traced back to greed, but that uh, greed can produce all kinds of sin. Every kind of sin that you can think of can find as its source greedy heart. Now, think about that. We've all lived the time we've seen the news we've experienced in our own lives. Think of all the sin that has been born out of a heart of greed. Think of the lying and the extortion, the immorality, the gossip, the deceit, the theft, the anger, the bitterness, the manipulation, the strife, even murder. Greed has torn apart families, fighting over a will. Greed has brought about terrible destruction in relationships. Through perhaps maybe you've given a loan to someone and they don't pay it back or they don't pay enough back and you become angry with them or a business deal gone bad or there's many things surrounding money that have destroyed relationships. Money and the love for money has caused others to take advantage of the vulnerable in many ways. I think of King Ahab. The day he's out looking around and he sees this plot of land, this vineyard and he says, I like that. I want that. It would go well next to my palace here. But Naboth, the owner of the vineyard, said, no, I don't want to sell it. It's been in my family, and I don't want to give it up. That would be dishonoring to my ancestors. But Naboth had to have the field, and so his lovely wife Jezebel concocts a plot to have Naboth uh, falsely accused of blasphemy and then stoned to death. And then two, Naboth's sons had to be taken out as well so that Ahab could claim rights to the land. So the whole family was destroyed because the king who had so much land, but he had to have that piece of land. And that kind of thing has happened all through history. I read not that long ago about a woman who was caring for an elderly man who was suffering from Alzheimer's. She had convinced the man to sign over a second mortgage of his house to her in her name. She made none of the mortgage payments and then she skipped town when the house was foreclosed on, leaving this old gentleman with no money and no home. The police were not able to go after her because all of it was legal. But the enjoyment of those ill-gotten riches will not last. First Timothy 6.10 says that those who long for money have literally impaled themselves with many sufferings, much grief, much woe and distress. But some of us would say, or, you know, I see those who are greedy and they seem to be having a good time. They don't seem to be having any worries or concerns. Life is fun and, and easy for them. Yes, but even poison is sweet when it goes down with honey. Even the most trusted of friends can stab someone in the back. Even the most beautiful of sunsets can blind the eye. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says that he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. Fourth century church father John Chrysostom said to learn how true this is, The only way is to sojourn with the rich, to see how many are their sorrows and how bitter their complaints. Andrew Carnegie said, millionaires seldom smile. Rockefeller said, I've made many millions, but they've brought me no happiness. Or like Henry Ford's conclusion, I was happier when I was doing a mechanic's job. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. But what's most tragic about the slippery slope of greed is what lies at the bottom of that slide. Paul describes it at the end of verse 9 when he says these harmful desires plunge. That's literally to sink or to drown men in ruin and destruction. Those two synonyms Paul gives really overlap one another. Ruin and destruction, I think he gives them together to emphasize this. this is a total, complete loss and annihilation and death. Ananias and Sapphira come to mind as examples of that. You remember their story in Acts 5, right? They'd sold a piece of property. The The church, uh, many in the church have been selling their things and giving to those who had need. And so Ananias and Sapphira do the same. And they sell this property and, and then they come to the apostles to provide for the needs of the church. A, a noble gesture. Certainly they were storing up treasure in heaven. Now they did keep some of the money, which wasn't a problem. They, they weren't required to give all that they had Sold, but then they claimed that they gave it all. That was the problem. They wanted to be seen in a certain light by those around them. But their greed had ensnared them, even in the midst of a generous act. And that led to their destruction as their final end was dropping dead at the doorstep of the church. Those words, ruin and destruction, are used in the New Testament not only to refer to physical destruction, but also spiritual destruction because there are many many who will serve the god of riches and you know the price that they will pay to serve that god their own soul you know what matthew or what jesus said in matthew 16 26 what will it profit a man if he what he gains the whole world and loses his soul remember the rich young ruler in matthew 19 who came to jesus and he he had asked, Lord, what may I do to inherit eternal life? And, and basically explained to Jesus how he had religiously kept the law and that he was doing fine. And Jesus then confronts him with the real issue. And he says this, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and come follow me. And Matthew 19, verse 22 says that when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieved for he owned much property. Well, really, the property owned him. See, the problem wasn't in the owning of the property, but in his unwillingness to give it up. That man was clinging tightly to riches all the way as he slid into eternal destruction. He wanted what he had in his hands more than what Jesus was offering him, which is a relationship with him, eternal life. He was willing to sell his soul for his possessions. Look again at verse Timothy 6.10 where it says, Some by longing for it, that's a word that literally means to reach out, to, to stretch, to attain. Some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith. That's sobering. It's a frightening statement to think about. The striving after riches will lead some to trade Jesus in for those riches. There was a man who lived alongside Christ himself for over three years. He had seen Jesus' miracles. He heard his amazing teaching. This man was personally discipled by the Son of God for those three years. And yet he wandered from the faith, trading in Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. To be with Jesus, think about it. He was with Christ, the Son of God, for those three years or so And he loved money more than the Savior. And what was Judas's price for his soul? 30 pieces of silver. Enough to buy a piece of land, but not enough to deliver him from eternal destruction. It's very sobering. It's very scary to think of how dangerous the love of money is. You remember the parable of the sower, right? Jesus talked there about the hard soil, the... The good soil, the, the rocky soil, the thorny soil. And there in that description of the hard soil being those hard hearts who are unwilling to hear the gospel so Satan Satan snatches it away. And, and the good soil where, where the, the gospel is heard and accepted and believed. And, and there's fruit. Uh, there's a crop that's yield much fruit showing true conversion. And then Jesus talks about those two other soils. The rocky soil which represents uh, uh, where the seed would come up and sprout but the sun would wither it because there was no deep root. For the rocks, that was representative of, of when persecution and trials come, person walks away. Or the, the thorny soil, where again, there's an initial excitement from the gospel and there's a sprout up from the seed, but, but the, Jesus says the riches and the desires for the goods of the world and the things of the world choke it out. Those thorny weeds choke it out. And that's a description that Paul's giving here of riches causing one to wander away from the faith. Some will try Jesus out for a while. The, the gospel excites them. Being around in church, around Christians, excites them for a time. But then the, the desire for riches, the love of money, the dependence on things, the, the trust in wealth causes that person, it chokes out the gospel. It may happen over a period of days, weeks, even years. Beloved, that's why we must be so wary of greed And we cannot ever convince ourselves that there's not an issue here. You cannot say, I don't have a problem with it. I would never trade Jesus in for stuff. I would never do that for money. Puritan William Goosh said that covetousness is so hereditary a disease as no man is altogether free from it. It will in some degree or other be found in the best if they thoroughly sift themselves. And brothers and sisters, much is at stake here greed is a powerful enemy we've seen from those illustrations people even close to god even next to jesus even living with jesus willing to turn away because of money and their love for it your attitude towards money will expose whether your commitment to christ is real or not this brings up an important question then what are the signs of greed in my life what are the things that may show that, that I do have a love for money or, or a love for possessions or a dependence on them? Well, let's turn our attention from the danger of greed to the demonstration of greed. That are What are some ways that I might show a, a covetous heart? I wanted to give you some thoughts as I was thinking about this, examining my own life, examining the situations I've come across in others' lives, and just uh, give you some things to think about where greed may show itself in your life. Jesus gave us one area when he talked about in Luke 12 and Matthew 6, when you worry about it, when you're anxious about it, when when you lose sleep over it or fret or, or you give more attention to money than God's kingdom. It can be seen when you're willing to sin for money by lying or deceiving or flattering or stealing or violating your conscience or cheating on your taxes or manipulating circumstances for your financial benefits, staying silent when you're given the wrong amount of change. Or disobeying any of God's standards to get money. Love of money is evident when you are caught up in get-rich schemes or you act hastily or foolishly in order to gain money. Love of money is seen, listen, when you are more concerned about making money than about how well the job you're doing is. When your work ethic becomes less important than the paycheck, that's a sign of love for money. Jesus said, do your work heartily as unto Him. That's the goal of our labors. Covetousness is also at the heart when you get angry or you complain incessantly when you have to spend money or pay bills or pay taxes or some need, something you need to purchase. When you get angry, when a, someone won't cut you a deal. Especially if that person's a believer. Greed's revealed when you're stingy with money, when you have little compassion for those in need, when you don't want anyone to borrow anything of yours, or when they do, you obsess over what's happening to it. Or when the, the thing is returned that they borrowed, and it's not in the condition you gave it to them, though it should be. If you borrow something, return it in a better condition. But sometimes things happen. How do you respond when you receive back the thing that you loaned out? You know, uh, Jack... Uh, Hughes was such a great example to me in that. I've borrowed things from him over the years and occasionally uh, damaged them. And (laughs) you have too, huh? (laughs) But you know, his response was like, you know what, don't worry about it. And he meant it. He said, it's God's anyway. Such an example to me. Love of money is shown when you never have enough of it. When your continual pursuit is the bigger house, the nicer car, the longer vacations, more clothing, more jewelry, more toys, just more. You display a love of money when you consistently spend more than you earn. When you accumulate debt without following a budget. It's shown when you do things so others notice how much you have. How you dress, what you talk about, what you drive, where you live. Again, the issue isn't having these things. The issue is are you drawing attention to them intentionally? A love for money is shown when you neglect responsibilities at home or at church consistently in order to make money. Do you find more enjoyment spending money or spending time with God or his people? Do you spend an inordinate amount of time thinking about it, spending it, saving it, using it, storing it, thinking of ways to make more of it? Compare the effort that you spend on that with the amount of time and effort you put into your family, your spouse, your children, your church or evangelism a sign you love money is evident when you won't forgive someone who has wronged you financially when you take a fellow believer to court to settle a financial dispute another sign is that the love of money is there when you don't give cheerfully or you don't give at all or when you give only in the prosperous times or when you view your offering like a bill or a payment. We had a time of offering earlier today. Was was, Well, yeah, Here's. I've got to cut the check now and turn it in. It's my responsibility since I'm here at this church. Or when you think of it as your money. Or when it is not given as to the Lord. I remember a church that I was in, I attended, I uh, knew of a person who, uh, about a year or two after they left the church, they called back the church office and they, they demanded to have all their offerings returned to them. True story. Unbelievable. That is somebody who doesn't understand that everything they have is from the Lord, and when they give, it is given as to the Lord. God, you gave me this. I'm returning it. It's yours. Do with it as you see fit. You know, I really appreciated uh, Tim Adams last week, what he had to say. He was very transparent with us at one point when we were singing that song, I Surrender All. You remember what he said? He said, you know, when I think about that song, I, I, I think really for me... I..." I need to change the words to I surrender some or or maybe I surrender most. And as he was talking about that, it, it made me think about my own love for comfort and ease and stuff. And I asked myself, how much do I surrender? Really? Really? We all struggle with this. We all struggle to hold too tightly to our stuff. Some of us that struggle is stronger than for others. But let's face it, greed is our common adversary. So how do we battle such a powerful foe? How do we eliminate the love for money, the desire for things, the dependence on them? How do we conquer greed? Well, let's go to the third point this morning. We've talked about the danger of greed. We've talked about the demonstration of greed. Let's talk about the defeat of greed. Go back to 1 Timothy 6. As I said earlier, the challenge in combating greed comes from the fact that it exists in our very hearts. And I think Piper really did hit it on the head when he said covetousness is desiring something so much that you lose your contentment in God. That's essentially what Paul was getting at. If you look back at verse six, where he says godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by what? Contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we can take nothing out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. One pastor said, true godliness and true gain is unrelated to how much you have. It's only related to how much you want. And that word contentment here literally means to be self-sufficient, to have no needs, to be, have no urge to seek more. Paul says in verse 8, if we have food and covering, I think he was talking about covering of our body, clothing. If I have a meal today and there's something covering me, I'm content. Really? How do you get there in your heart, Paul? And not only that, in Philippians 4.11, Paul went even a step further when he said there, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Wow, how did that happen, Paul? Are you some super saint? Have you actually attained to the next level that you could be content just with whatever God has given or not given you? Well, Paul wasn't drawing attention to himself. He wasn't saying, Look at me, I figured it out. I'm content no matter what. Take away anything from me, I'm still happy. Because in the next verse, he says this I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Through Christ who strengthens me. Listen, beloved, it it all comes down to this. All that said this morning comes down to this Is Jesus enough? Is he enough? If everything else were stripped away. If you had nothing. Would you be satisfied with Christ alone? You know, at times we sing that song. uh, You are my strength when I am weak. You are the treasure that I seek. You are my all and all. I have to think at times, do do we truly mean that? That was Jesus' message. He said, I am the bread of life. He said, is anyone thirsty? Let him come to me to drink. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give, he will never thirst. He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die, will uh, will, will live even though he dies, even if he dies. Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. He said, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. He said, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. He said, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Do you hear what he's saying? All the statements and many, many more. Do you hear him, brothers and sisters? Do Do you hear him? Those of you who are seeking for comfort and peace and joy and satisfaction. Do you hear him? Those of you who are relying on your things. Jesus is saying, look to me. I have what you need. You don't have to look anywhere else. I have what you've been longing for. Nothing else will bring you lasting satisfaction. Nothing else will truly care for the burdens of your soul. Nothing else will truly bring you comfort. Look to me, he says, because when you leave this world, you'll take nothing with you. As the saying goes, there are no pockets in a shroud. Took me a minute to get that one, too. Right, but it's true. But if you have Jesus, you don't need pockets. If you have Him, you have everything you need. If you turn from your sin and place your trust completely in Him, if you believe that he paid for your sins, he died to pay for them as we celebrated earlier. If you fall at his feet, cry for mercy, seek forgiveness. If you declare your allegiance to him for life, as he told the rich young ruler, come follow me, then you will gain Jesus. You won't need anything else. Nothing else at all. How does that song go? You can have all this world, but give me more. no. Give me Jesus. That's it. (laughs) Right? You can have all this world. Give me Jesus. For in Christ we have forgiveness. In Him we have heaven. In Him we have forgiveness, riches untold. We have one who loves unconditionally. We have one who will not desert us. We have one who promises to give us all we need. He's the bread of life. He gives us living water will never thirst again. If you would see true contentment in your heart, if you would see that enemy greed shrink back in horror, if you would see his power diminish, if you would see the love of money diminish within your own soul, then you need to keep your eyes fixed on Christ. They need to be focused solely on him. If he loved you enough to die for you, will he not take care of you? I'll certainly do that. And that's at the heart of what Paul had to say just a few verses later in 1 Timothy 6. Look down at verse 17. Paul didn't want to leave this issue of wealth before finishing the letter. He said in verse 17, "...instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy." Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Here Paul gives some great practical advice to those who are rich, which essentially is all of us. If we have more than... What we need to eat today, if we have more than what we're wearing right now, we are rich. And to us, he says two things. Fix your hope, not on things, but on God. And use your riches to do good. He says, don't be conceited. Don't see yourself as superior. Don't place your confidence in yourself or the things you have. Don't fix your hope on your riches. Don't trust in what the things that you possess, because again, riches aren't certain. He's echoing back to what Jesus was saying. There are moths. there are there are creatures that eat things, there are there are thieves. Riches sprout wings and fly away. Don't rely on them, they're uncertain. We must recognize that it is God who supplies, richly supplies all things. That He made the world, He sustains the world, and He cares for it. And He is the one who will give wealth or take it. He is the one who care for our needs our hope must be fixed on him especially especially in those times of great need i came across um, exodus 16 in my bible reading this week and uh, that was the part where the uh, israelites had, had just escaped from egypt through the red sea and they were in the wilderness of sin on their way up to mount sinai and they were wandering around for a little bit there and and they got hungry they had kids to eat you know animals to feed they got hungry and so they started complaining. God, did you take us out here to kill us? And God says, I'll feed you. I'll take care of that. But what he did was he said, I'm going to send food tomorrow, but I'm only going to send enough for that day. So go out, gather what you need for the day, and then I'll bring some more the next day. But don't gather more. So put yourself in their shoes. You have teenagers, you're hungry. You're out in the desert. God says, Okay, I'll provide food for you. You say, Okay, good. It's the next morning. You see all this interesting stuff called mana. What is it, literally? Sweet bread. And you, you gather some, you gather some. Now, would you be tempted maybe to stick a little more in the bushel just in case? Some of you are honest. Well, the Israelites, they chose the latter. They uh, found to them that the next day the leftovers, the extra that they took, was full of worms. But sometimes we're like that. You know, we know God says He'll take care of us. We know He has promised to do that. But we don't fully trust Him enough. So we have this plan B to cover ourselves just in case. We have to latch on to the words of Hebrew thirteen five, which says, be, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Why? For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Trusting in riches is a direct slam on the trustworthiness of God. And I know it's hard. I understand that. This is what Christ was telling us when he said, Are, are you not more valuable to God than birds or flowers? He'll never abandon you. He will never turn his back on you. You will receive the manna that you need for that day. Fix your hope on God, not on riches. And then back in First Timothy 6, Paul gives us a, a practical way to battle greed when he says, do good, be rich in good works, be generous, be ready to share. Very practical advice. You know, oftentimes in dealing with specific sins in our lives and dealing with the issues of the heart related to those sins, it's, it's helpful to have a, a practical external way to be attacking that sin. And here Paul says, you can attack love for money by essentially giving it away, using it to do good, sharing it, being generous with it, holding that money loosely. What's that saying? Uh, if you love something, set it free. If you love money, set it free. Get rid of it. Be that radical if you need. Jesus said that, and that's what he told the rich young ruler. Sell it. If that's what's getting in the way of worshiping God, if that's what's getting in the way from you trusting and depending on him, and get rid of it. Just like if a person were caught in adultery, we'd say, get out of the relationship. Don't see that person anymore. Be rid of what tempts you. The way you attack a love for money, or one way is to give it away. For some of us, that may mean give everything away. Some say the best defense is a good offense. So go on the attack of greed and come up with a strategy to give. Think through a a strategy. Make a commitment before the Lord of what you will give to Him, no matter the circumstances, what you will set aside to give to others who have needs. Have a plan as to how you will do that to help someone else out. We, there's a, a couple that my wife and I have known for a number of years, and they have in their budget um, uh, a, a line item set aside just to provide for needs of someone that they come across. They don't have specific ones in mind, but, but they keep some set aside in case they hear of a need and they give. And they have done that even when they didn't make hardly anything, they still set some aside not just for the work of the Lord and the church they were at, but also to give for needs. We have a lot of needs. I think God brings those needs to see, what are you going to do with your stuff? Are you going to help that person out or not? I can, but that's not the problem. Will you? But I don't want you to react to this message by determining, I'm I'm just going to give a bunch of money next week. Or I don't want you to react to this by having a one-week binge of generosity towards others. But to really think through, think through how you will consistently commit to the things God has given you for the good of others, for the good of the body of Christ, for the good of advancing the gospel. Again, the goal of this message isn't so that we can beef up our offerings of the church here. The goal of the message is to examine our own hearts so that we're not withholding anything from what God wants to do through us through the things He's given us. And we have a lot. We have a lot, brothers and sisters. In having money, God has given us a great test. Will we rely on it or on Him? Will we be more satisfied in what we have or in Jesus? I think, brothers and sisters, we we have so much that I think sometimes we don't realize it. We've been anesthetized to what God has given. and And the... The love for money may be kind of like a vine growing on, the, on a wall, which, you know, you don't see much of it, but then all of a sudden you turn around, and weeks later this vine has crept all the way across. I think for some of us that is going on in our own hearts. And so I'm burdened this morning just to call us all to examine ourselves. We're going to spend a moment to do that. I want to give you time to examine your own hearts in regards to your earthly possessions, what God has so graciously given to you. Take a moment now. We're going to prayerfully think about where we're at with this. And as we go before the Father in silent prayer, I want you to ask Him to show you where you struggle. Ask Him to enable you to be content. Ask Him, Lord, if there are any areas of my life that I'm not content with either what you've given or not given, ask Him to show you ways that you can do good. Ask Him to help you be disciplined to come up with a plan to give of what you have. So I'm going to give you a minute now to do that in silence, and then, then um, we'll sing in response to the to these things. Father, we echo the prayer of the psalmist, in Psalm 119, when he said, "Incline my art, my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain." But we are weak and frail. We're prone to rely on things. We're prone to trust and depend on. Possessions, uh, people, more than you. Father, forgive us for that. Show us more of Jesus. Help us to truly embrace and understand what He meant when He said that He's the bread of life. When, When He said that He has living water, that He's the resurrection and the life, the vine, the door, the shepherd. Give us a greater glimpse of our Savior. May He be our hope and our satisfaction and help us lord to treasure him above all else for he is our only treasure we pray in his dear name amen